bottom line in business. Voice America Business. Good morning, and thank you for joining host Cheryl Esposito for an intriguing hour of leading conversations. Each week, Cheryl brings together big thinkers to the Voice America Business Channel. Now here's your host, Cheryl Esposito. And good morning, everyone, and welcome to Leading Conversations. This is Cheryl Esposito. We have a wonderful guest with us this morning, Lynn Twist. Lynn is a global activist, fundraiser, consultant, and most of you know her as the author of The Soul of Money. She's also the founder of The Soul of Money Institute and co-founded the Pachamama Alliance, which is dedicated to preserving the tropical rainforest, but it has a special twist from most nonprofit organizations dedicated to rainforest activities, and we're going to talk about that a little bit later in the show. Welcome, Lynn. Thank you. Good morning. Good morning. It's so good to have you here. So you are, where are you today? Well, I'm grateful to be in San Francisco, California, in my own home and in my own office. So it's wonderful to be home. I travel a great deal, uh, but I'm now home. Oh, wonderful. Well, it's a privilege for us to have you with us today. Now, I want to talk a little bit about kind of how you got to where you are. Uh, When I read about what you've done, when I hear people talk about your work, I think this woman has had to have lived 25 lives already because you (laughs) do so much. I'm just always so impressed. You know, one of the first things I learned about you was um, around the book, The Soul of Money, and your Soul of Money Institute. And you you had a very interesting take on fundraising and how people, and people's relationship to money. I'm curious to know, before we get into the core of that, what created your interest in that field? You know, what were you doing um, early in your life that took you there? Well, I think the, one of the things that really created a, a, a relationship with that arena, fundraising, um, uh, for me was that when I was in kindergarten, I, um, I, I lived in Evanston, Illinois. I had two older sisters, Holly and Wendy, and um, I was in Miss Edna's kindergarten. Mm-hmm. And, you know, if you're the third in a, in a family or the younger member of a family in a, in a sibling situation, you always want to be just like your older sisters or your older oh, brothers, yes. in my case, sisters. And I was so excited to be in school because my sisters had been in school for some time. And, um, <laughs> and then uh, I, I'd been in kindergarten, I think, for maybe two, three months, I don't know, not that long, and I just thought school was the best thing. And I was in Miss Edna's kindergarten, and she was just my favorite person. Oh. And one day, my sister, my older sister, came home from school, and she was very, very upset and was just weeping in my mother's lap. And she didn't want her little sister around at all. But I listened through the door and heard that she had been selected the star of the school play, which would have been, you know, good news for my sister because she was a little bit of a prima donna at that age. But the uh, the upset was that she had found out that there would be no costumes or sets for the school play because the school was on a very tight budget and they just couldn't afford that. And so that just dashed all her dreams of being the star, you know, dressed in some glorious costume with fabulous sets. And so I went right back to kindergarten the next day and told Miss Edna that maybe we could organize a little fundraising uh, project uh, with the kindergartners so that we could get the money to pay for the costumes and sets for the school play. 
and she thought it was a fabulous idea. So she and I, this is my memory now, I was five years old, uh-huh. but this is how uh-huh. it showed up for me. We organized our uh, our little kindergarten class to make lemonade and chocolate chip cookies um, and uh, do cho- chocolate chip cookie and lemonade stands uh, on the four corners of Lincoln School oh my every day after school and all weekend, uh, every weekend, until we had enough money to pay for the costumes and sets for the school play. And everybody in the whole school got behind it. They thought it was the coolest thing. And we couldn't add, we couldn't subtract, but we could fundraise. <laughs> and, uh, I love and I it. was so, so satisfying to have done that. And we were all so, it, it sort of transformed the whole school, if you can kind of imagine that. Oh, wow. And so my first fundraising project was an act of love for my sister. And I, I, I think I got the context early on that fundraising is an act of love, that people will give money for something that's needed out of their love, um, and that fundraising is all about love. And so that's kind of how it started for me, if you ask wow. about my childhood. And then, of course, um, on in my life, there's lots of other other milestones that had me understand fundraising even at a deeper level, but that's how it all began. You know, that really makes me think about how important moments in one's childhood are and the effect of adults on kids. Imagine if she had had a different response to you. Your whole life may be different. <laughs> Miss Edna. Edna had yeah, done. she was just a great awesome, idea. that Miss Edna. <laughs> <laughs> you know, I mean, isn't that interesting? Yeah, it was quite wonderful. Instead uh-huh. of saying, oh, too bad about that, that's how yeah. budgets go, she just got with the program and, and uh, helped to... You know, I'm sure she did all the organizing, actually, when I looked sure. back. But I was only five, but it was my idea, and so yeah, I'm yeah, very yeah. proud. Oh, that's fantastic. That's a great story. Well, so as you moved on in your life and, and you became an adult, and um, were you have you always been in the fundraising arena as an adult? Well, actually, uh, when I look back, uh, fundraising showed up for me really at the beginning of the Hunger Project, which is an organization I have been deeply involved with for almost almost all of my adult life and still mm-hmm. am to the extent that it's possible for me. And um, uh, when the Hunger Project began in 1977, I had been uh, working with and, and really been a kind of a, a student of Buckminster Fuller, the great mm-hmm. architect, designer, humanist, often called the grandfather of the yeah. future in the 20th century. And Bucky's ideas, his concept, his understanding of the intellectual integrity of the universe, and primarily his understanding of sufficiency, the distinction of sufficiency being quite different from abundance, really impacted my, I'd say, my psyche, my emotional life, my understanding of the world, my my worldview. And when the Hunger Project came into existence and Buckminster Fuller was one of the kind of... Uh, key people that helped get catalyzed the beginning of our work to end world mm-hmm. hunger. Um, we realized, oh my God, we're going to need money. And it was, <laughs> you know, we're not going to end world hunger without a little money here. Oh, and yeah. we just kind of forgot about that. Uh, but then when it became clear, and was pretty clear right away, that fundraising was going to be part of the picture, I was, I took on the fundraising. I said, well, I'll, I'll be responsible for that. I don't, I'm not sure if I know how and how to do it, but let's do it in a way that is consistent with our work. And mm-hmm. my colleague and really one of my greatest teachers, Joan Holmes, who 
uh, is still the head of the Hunger Project uh, this many years later, she and I created a fundraising methodology, philosophy, ontology that was consistent with what we saw to be the end of world hunger rather than its persistence. Mm. And so we we never uh, would raise money from need or holding up a starving child to make people feel guilty or obligated mm. to give money. We talked about the courage of hungry people. We talked about the opportunity to be in partnership with the people who are on the front lines of ending world hunger, the people who are hungry themselves, mm. and their bravery and their resilience. So we held them up as the people who were central to ending hunger rather than the people who uh, you had to feel sorry for. And that kind of revolutionized my whole idea about fundraising and revolutionized fundraising for the Hunger Project and for many other organizations, and we became teachers of fundraising in a kind of different context rather than need of the opportunity to serve and partner. Uh, So I would say that that... Uh, that the Hunger Project was the next real milestone in my understanding of fundraising being a sacred profession, one that moves money away from fear, which is where most of the money's going on our planet, towards love, uh, away from death, destruction, consumption, and depletion, towards life, love, the affirmation of life, the sustainability of life, and the service of all children of all species for all time. So I really see fundraising as the opportunity to facilitate the reallocation of the world's financial resources away from our fears and that which destroys life towards that which we love and that which sustains life. And that ennobles fundraising to its proper place, I think. Yeah. Well, when I think about um, people's relationship to money, uh, it's not only being asked for money that... um, tends to have a charge on it for a lot of people in our society. But simply, you know, the whole concept of worth and assigning value to one's talent and um, what we make in our jobs, etc. And and that in itself has had huge impact on how we show up in the world as a society. Mm-hmm. What do you think, how did we get there as a, as a world? How did we get to the point where money had that kind of effect on us? Well, I think that uh, there's a, a lot of things to say about that, um, so stop me if I talk too long. But <laughs> I, I would say that, first of all, the money system, the actual, our relationship with money, in the, in the very beginning, uh, we, we really invented money about 4,500 years ago to facilitate the sharing of our goods and resources with one another. Mm-hmm. And that was a very noble and, you know, and, and true and, and authentic uh, invention then when money was invented to do that. But along the way, uh, banking came into the picture, and it wasn't just banking, but other kinds of financial uh, instruments, other kinds of financial kind of, um, oh, let's see, uh, structures Right. that had us start believing in money rather than each other and start uh, thinking that we were exchanging money rather than exchanging our services with one another. And money started to have its own worth. And now I think uh, uh, after thousands of years of that kind of uh, small but now quite profound distortion, we've made money more important than human life, more important than the natural world, or more important than our relationship with God or spirit. And nobody would really admit that if you, you know, interviewed someone. They wouldn't say money's more important to me than my own children. Sure. However, or more important to me than my brothers and sisters. 
However, we will cut off our relationship with a mother or a father or an ex-wife or a child or a brother or sister for money. We will not speak to them for years over a money issue, which says very clearly the money is more important than that human being. And um, we will destroy an entire rainforest, the source of life, the source of our our oxygen, lungs of the planet, for money, even, even if we kind of know that that's what's happening. We will pollute the very water from which our grandchildren and great-grandchildren will drink for money. So we still hold money in our behavior more important than human life, the natural world, or spirit. And that is a lie. And we all know that it's a lie. We don't do that deliberately, but we're caught in a system that has exalted money beyond its actual real value. Mm. So we have um, an inauthentic now relationship with money, and uh, it's very, very harmful for us. It has mm. us, uh, it completely confuses our value system and makes outer riches more important than inner riches, uh, and that has uh, led us to lose our soul to a consumer society. Which, of course, brings us to what's happening today around the world in our global economic system. And I want to ask more about that when we come back right after this break. From the stock market floor to your laptop, we are Voice America Business. Leadership is not static. It evolves as you do. At Alexa Consulting, we work with CEOs, senior leaders, and leaders in transition who want to make a difference. Leaders who believe that good business is good for people, good for the world, and knows that conscious actions can have global impact. Are you ready to take your leadership to the next level? If you are, then visit our website at www.alexaconsulting.com. That's www.alexaconsulting.com. Alexa Consulting, developing leaders worldwide. More and more business people recognize the importance of spirituality in their work. How do busy professionals discover what rings true for them? Embracing the journey with Karen Humphrey Salad explores what it means to be spiritually fulfilled in business and how to integrate spiritual direction into a career. Expert guests, authors, and inspiring speakers join Karen every week to discuss such issues as honesty, compassion, generosity, ethics, and integrity in the workplace. Take a positive step forward to greater life balance. Tune into Embracing the Journey with Karen Humphrey Salad, broadcasting every Friday at 9 a.m. Pacific Time on the Voice America Business Channel, the bottom line in business talk. From the stock market floor to your laptop, we are Voice America Business. We appreciate you joining our leading conversations today. Now back to your host, Cheryl. And welcome back to Leading Conversations. We're speaking with Lynn Twist this morning, author of The Soul of Money. Um, Lynn, in our last segment, we were speaking about um, the effect of money over the centuries and where that has brought us to today in our global, as it's called, our global economic crisis. Um, you know, even that assigns importance to the economy and not necessarily to people mm-hmm. kind of reflects what you were talking about. So it, it sounds to me like this message that you have carried forward may be more relevant today than ever. 
what is your take on um, kind of this, where we've come, where we are, where everything is just disintegrating? Well, I think uh, what's happening is uh, very, I want to just first acknowledge it's painful. People who don't deserve it are getting caught in a way that is just uh, horrendously upsetting and and difficult and suffering is uh, continuing to abound um, and people are are terrified. At the same time, what's happening is, uh, in my view, accurate. Uh, In many ways, we need to embrace it and almost welcome it because what is falling apart, what is unraveling, uh, are the inauthentic structures and systems that have uh, been really uh, fostered by greed, by accumulation, by acquisition, many of them completely distorted now, derivatives of derivatives of options of derivatives of derivatives, where $1 is leveraged sometimes up to 1,200 times in um, inauthentic leveraging um, instruments. Um, we've um, allowed CEO pay to get, you know, completely, almost obscenely out of mm-hmm. out of range, um, and we have uh, we have a planet that's in what ecologists call overshoot, and eventually it needed to be reflected in our financial structures and systems. Overshoot means we're using more. Financi- uh, sorry, we're using more ecological resources mm. than the Earth can regenerate. Mm. So we're uh, we're actually uh, now eating up the capital of the the ultimate resource that we depend on, which is the resources of the Earth. And so uh, the resources of the Earth have been turned into um, that which uh, we uh, produce and consume for financial gain, and it's now caught up to us in the financial system. So um, that which is unsustainable does not last. That's what unsustainability means. Mm -hmm. And so the financial structures and systems that are unsustainable are falling apart. Mm -hmm. They are dying. And I think the times that we're in require us to hospice the death of these structures and systems, even the ones we've heavily depended on for our own survival. We need to hospice their natural death, not kill them, not destroy them but allow them to die their natural death while we midwife the birth of the new structures and systems that are more consistent mm-hmm. with a sustainable future for all forms of life. And to me, the, the um, climate change crisis, the climate crisis, the species extinction crisis, the social justice crisis, you could say the spiritual crisis, which mm-hmm. I say is marked by suicide rates, yeah. um, obesity rates, addiction rates, these are all signs of overshoot, but it took having the crisis hit the financial realm for us to really pay attention. And now it has our attention, and now we won't resolve it only in the financial realm. We need to go to the root of the entire crisis. All of these crises come from the same root, and that is that the human species has lost its way and is not living appropriately in harmony with uh, life itself. And, you know, it's going to be a long haul to make that shift. But had it not hit the financial arena, we wouldn't have even begun to think of recalibrating who we are and what we're doing to this planet um, at the level that we will now. So, unfortunately, we have to go through this pain to make the profound changes that are ours to make. It's almost as if the 
financial arena and, and the way we were able to play with money, and I do call it play, um, allowed us to go unconscious. It allowed us to cover up um, and layer on a lot of distractions. Yes, that's exactly right. Um, we're, we're really having a recess from excess. That's what this recession is all about. That's the beginning of waking up because overconsumption, which is where we all are, you know, there's really very few people who are not in that category today in today's world, particularly in the affluent nations, mm-hmm. puts you to sleep. It, it numbs you. It, um, you know, I, I work with the Achuar people, uh, which is an indigenous tribe in the Ecuadorian Amazon and other indigenous tribes, and I notice that when their babies are born, they, you know, put them in a sling and go back to work. We put our little ones in a bassinet with pillows and little blankies, and, you know, I love doing that myself. I have grandkids now, but I start to notice that you give, uh, we, we value, uh, we put such a high value on comfort that becomes almost necessary for survival and comfort and survival are not are not twins you know it's it's um it it actually comfort often uh extreme comfort uh often uh, puts us deeper in a trance and it's a time when we actually really need to wake up and we need to be alert we need to be aware we need to pay attention to the consequences of our action mm-hmm. and excessive money and luxury uh really often, not always, but uh, can put you in a state of a, almost like a stupor. Right. And we can't afford to be doing that right now. We, there, there's too many things that are at risk. So I think you're completely right about that, and that's part of what lulls us into thinking, well, it'll just turn out, we can keep going like this. Sure. Well, now, do you think that this is somehow connected to what has been happening, I, I think, probably over the last 20, 30 years, um, with people and their vocations? You know, we've heard people talk about how they hate their jobs, about how they don't know what their passion is, about um, not feeling connected to what they do, and yet they do it. They get in the car, they make the commute, they walk down the, the gray halls of the corporate buildings, you know, they um, don't really make connections with people at work. They can't wait for 5 o'clock to come so that they can go home and talk to people they really like, quote-unquote. I mean, I've heard all of this over the years in my work uh, as an executive coach, and I wonder, you know, I mean, that certainly sounds trance-like, and I wonder um, if that was not the beginning of the... Um, or certainly, maybe not the beginning, but it's certainly a key component of, of the break with where we need to be. Well, I think that's another uh, right-on target comment, <laughs> Cheryl. I think you're completely right. I, we, we've, we've actually started to uh, fall into, or not started to, we're deeply into what Buckminster Fuller used to call false jobs. Mm-hmm. And false jobs, or he even used the word fake jobs, are jobs that actually don't need to be done. And so you can't get any satisfaction from them. The humanity doesn't really need them, and they're just manufactured in order to give people uh, uh, work to make money. And um, I don't want to be too hard on the kind of Wall Street world because there's many, many people listening, I'm sure, who are associated with Mm -hmm. it and engaged with it. But if you actually look at the Wall Street, uh, the financial world, and um, 
many, 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 many now people are working at some level of financial services. That's making money with money. It's not producing a service for someone else. Mm. It's not actually uh, like being a, a cobbler or a mechanic or a uh, someone who constructs a house. Right. You're not really creating anything. And um, lots of jobs actually have no real value in terms of serving uh, another human being or making something happen that's necessary and important for life. So our job market has gotten away from what's really necessary and useful. And, you know, when you complete a task, I mean, something as simple as sewing on a button mm-hmm. or um, uh, cleaning your home, I'm thinking of things that women do, but uh, also men who construct a treehouse for their son in the backyard, it is so satisfying to create something or to repair something mm-hmm. or to make a meal where, where you're actually creating a service for another human being mm-hmm. That's something that they really need. We've gotten pretty far afield from that in a lot of our uh, a lot of our job market. And one of the thing, one of the kind of new heroes on the scene that you probably should interview when you have a chance is is my friend Van Jones, a young, mm. uh, very very dynamic um, leader in the green jobs movement, whose uh, really uh, whose message is that we need to retrofit our entire economy. We need to reboot a nation. We need to yeah. shift from an extractive economy that takes from the earth, takes from one another, that has kind of a lot of uh, uh, employment opportunities that are uh, extractive and exploitive that really don't produce anything or make anything happen that is useful to a green economy where we're uh, respecting the resources of the earth, where we're using uh, the sun and the wind to uh, meet our needs. And when I think about the kind of things that Van is suggesting, the kind of huge uh, workforce that we now need, not just in the United States but around the world, it's much closer to what Bucky Fuller would call real work, Mm -hmm. real work that actually gives you satisfaction. So um, most people are making what I call, uh, with Vicki Robin, my my friend who's a wonderful author, uh, a killing or they're making a dying. A killing meaning they're taking... uh, more than their share, they're exploiting and extracting uh, to make a killing, uh, or they're making a dying uh, rather than a living. A dying is the kind of job that you described where someone's doing something that has no value for them. Mm-hmm. They kind of almost hate it, but they're doing it because they need to bring home a paycheck. Yeah. And very few people are really making what Bucky would call a living. And I think we need to recalibrate so much of who we are and where we're going. Uh, this almost sounds unconfrontable, but we mm. can do it to find um, that next, for people particularly who've lost their job, mm-hmm. to see how can they get involved in the new economy, the economy of the future, the economy that's about uh, making a living, not a dying, and uh, making a living, not a killing, creating life rather than destroying it. That feels really big, Lynn. <laughs> it's huge. It's yeah. huge. Well, yeah, and and so I wonder um, how we as individuals can do this. I mean, if I if I think of even just one person who 
maybe is on Wall Street, or we've been hearing recently about um, so many layoffs, and some in towns where people, that's all they've done. They work, it's a company town, they work for an organization for a long time, and um, that's their skill that they see that's their only skill. They probably have more, but, um, and the, the fear is so big. I mean, how do they actually um, make a shift that can satisfy that sense of, of desperation that they're in. And I want to talk more about that when we come back after this break. The Internet's only all-business and financial radio network, Voice America Business. Leadership is not static. It evolves as you do. At Alexa Consulting, we work with CEOs, senior leaders, and leaders in transition who want to make a difference. Leaders who believe that good business is good for people, good for the world, and knows that conscious actions can have global impact. Are you ready to take your leadership to the next level? If you are, then visit our website at www.alexaconsulting.com. That's www.alexaconsulting.com. Alexa Consulting, developing leaders worldwide. Hey, Dad. What? I can't get the ketchup bottle open. Here, let me try. Here you go. Thanks. You don't have to be a hero to be a hero. When you adopt a child from foster care, just being there makes all the difference. To learn more, call 1-888-200-4005. A public service announcement brought to you by Adopt US Kids, the U.S. Department of Health and Human Services, and the Ad Council. The economy and financial markets continue to expand in both their size and complexity. But being able to anticipate changes in the markets for housing, jobs, and financial assets remains a crucial ingredient to our financial well-being. On The Economy and the Markets, with economist, investment strategist, portfolio manager, and host, Doug Cliggett, utilizes his 25 years of experience with that of his highly informed guests to provide clear, reasoned explanations of current events. To navigate the markets that influence our lives every day of the week, tune into The Economy and the Markets. With Doug Cliggett, broadcasting each Thursday at 1 p.m. Pacific, 4 p.m. Eastern on the Voice America Business Channel. The economy and the markets. Clear thoughts in a complex world. The Internet's only all-business and financial radio network, Voice America Business. We appreciate you joining our leading conversations today. Now back to your host, Cheryl. We're speaking with Lynn Twist this morning. Lynn, in the last segment, we uh, were speaking about uh, the big, big shift that needs to happen. Um, can you speak to that a bit? Well, I, I'm speaking to you after uh, just coming back a few days ago from Washington, D.C., where I was just so honored to be present for Barack Obama's inaugural oh, address and the inaugural ball and just that whole uh, huge marker of a shift in uh, the direction of our own country, and I'm I'm um, I'm looking at his speech, which I printed out and, and studied, and also watched it several times. And 
he really has had the courage in the first moment of his presidency to point to everything that I'm saying. Yes. He's talking to, he talked about how our economy is badly weakened, and he says a consequence of greed and irresponsibility on the part of some, but also our collective failure to make hard choices yeah. and prepare ourselves, our nation, and our world for a new age. Um, that we that the world has changed and we must change with it. Uh, lots of these beautiful phrases that he uses, yeah. and to me, it, it's it's he's really telling us all that this is not going to be an easy time, but it's going to be the time that re uh, deep rebuilds and deepens the character of our country. It is when people need to collaborate, help each other, and face something that looks nearly impossible and accomplish it anyway that it builds the character of a nation, a character of a human being. And that's really what he says in the speech in many ways over and over and over again. Practically every paragraph has something like that in it. And I think what he's saying is we need to recalibrate, retool, rethink our economy, our whole economy, and our relationship with money. He doesn't quite put it that way, but I will. You know, money, the way it's created, we are, you know, we're generating this huge, unfathomable uh, debt every day, and now we're adding $850 billion, uh, nearly a trillion dollars more, to a, almost un, unimaginable, uncomprehensible un, un, un debt. Mm-hmm. And that is really the uh, the result of a money system that is rooted in debt. Actually, how money's created <clears throat> is it's created by being loaned into existence. Uh, our central bank, which is called the Federal Reserve, is neither federal nor a reserve. It's a private company. Right. And the government asks the Federal Reserve for permission to print money, and we print it in a way that when we print it, we owe more than we print right off the bat. So we loan money into existence with interest attached to it. This is a very complex conversation I'm getting us into now, and I don't yeah, know if I we, understand. we should do that. for but people at, to, to know. Yeah. At the very root of our money system, you can go online and watch a very short and very enlightening little film called Money as Debt, if you just Google that, hmm. and explains how money comes into existence and how banking... Uh, has now taken uh, such a important role, and we think of the banks and and the people who work in them as good people, and I don't mean to discredit them in any way, but there is a system that we're caught in that we don't even know we're in. Right. And so one of the things that the Pachamama Alliance, uh, uh, my uh, the organization that I'm involved with now, is doing is really looking very deeply into the money system and creating, as many people have been studying for about 30 years, alternative money systems, alternative currency systems, not instead of the one we have, but to complement the one we have, that don't draw interest and don't inflate, that create an equanimity among people so that they can share their goods and services. Mm. So this is a very complex conversation, but I think that is the direction in which we're headed. And I think it's years of rethinking our relationship with money, rethinking our economy, and for an average person, I'll just use my brother as an example because I talked to him last night and he's financially really, really strapped. And he's an electric lighting consultant who works on country clubs, second homes, and does very elaborate, very beautiful lighting. That industry doesn't uh, isn't flourishing. <laughs> right. 
people are not building their second home. Uh, country clubs are not, you know, remodeling. Um, so he's really, uh, his business is not uh, close to flourishing. And he's starting to realize that he needs to start finding work in the green economy. He needs to start uh, working with uh, new structures that are um, uh, creating uh, uh, factories and new um, new buildings, new office buildings that uh, create no waste, that have a particular kind of uh, electric lighting that is uh, takes less energy. That he needs to get into that business. He needs to shift his whole life's career, he's in his 50s, um, to get involved in uh, that. His, he can stay in his industry, but be promoting, fostering, and working in his industry in a new way. And, um, you know, and I'm his sister, so in, in, in hearing him talk about the troubles, I reached out to him financially, of course, as any sister would, but also uh, really am encouraging him to take a big leap into an arena that is not where he has all his experience, but where he needs to be a learner. Right. And, <clears throat> you know, I'm, I'm so uh, grateful that I'm in a position at least to speak to people about money in a way that um, they can maybe rethink and think outside of the box mm-hmm. about what money can be. Mm-hmm. Um, so there's so many things I could say about this, but I think we all need to look at where are we investing money? Is it really in, are we investing in companies that we feel good about? Mm-hmm. Uh, or are we in indexes where we have no idea where our money's going? Mm-hmm. Um, uh, are, we, are we consuming things in a way that is harmful? Are we buying products that are uh, toxic or are taking resources from the earth in a way that's unhealthy, you know, diamonds and gold, which we all treasure and value, these are industries in silver that are just raping and pillaging the earth and uh, using horrible kinds of uh, really oppressive labor. Do we really need another diamond necklace, another ring? You know, really, do we? And this recess from excess will have us question those things and have us kind of look underneath our buying habits and pull back, not pull back from being human, but pull back from uh, being consumers rather than citizens and step forward with our citizenship rather than step forward with our role as a consumer. Because I think who we really are is citizens, not consumers. And even the label consumer demeans us. It means he or she who takes, depletes, um, destroys, or diminishes. The word citizen means he or she who is responsible for the well-being of all. And that's who we need to be right now, and that's what our new president is calling for. Well, and Barack even opened his inaugural speech by saying, "My fellow citizens." Yes, I'm not very my fellow consumers. He didn't say my my fellow Americans. He said, <laughs> "My fellow citizens." I thought that was very intentional. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, I think about how growing up, um, there was kind of this. Um, Oh, rejection of money and, you know, kind of the hippie movement kind of said, oh, we don't need all that, all that consumerism, materialistic things. And there became, uh, it became divisive instead of, you know, the, what you're saying, which is let's relook, rethink, be intentional. It was, um, good and evil. And money was evil. Mm-hmm. And um, and then all of us grew up, and suddenly money wasn't evil anymore because we had families, we had to support ourselves, and boom, you know, we kind of walked right into the establishment. And 
So I'm wondering how this shift happens without making money evil. Well, first of all, it's important to realize that uh, to vilify money is so useless um, because we have uh, assigned it its power. Money has no power other than the power we assign to it or the meaning we assign to it, and we've assigned it this meaning that's made it more important than human life, uh, more important than the natural world, or more important than God or spirit. And that really is where the mischief is. Um, money is actually neutral. It's a carrier. It's, it's very much like water. In the Soul of Money book, I write about this, um, that money is like water. It's a carrier. It's a current uh, or a currency, as it's called, mm. that runs through every life. And for some people, it runs like a huge rushing river. Uh, it even can flood their life and drown them a little bit. Or it can, for other people, it runs through their life like a little baby trickle, but it comes through your life. It comes in and it goes out. And um, it's neutral. Uh, but why I named my book The Soul of Money, not because money has soul, but because we do and we can give soul to money. We can use it in a way that represents our highest commitments. Mm -hmm. And when we do that, money carries those commitments into the world. Um, That's why philanthropy, I think, is so important for every single person. I don't think it's only for the people who have excess or wealth. I think philanthropy, which means love of humankind, uh, is a practice that's vital for uh, a happy life. That is that you use money and move it towards the things you're most deeply committed to, the things that you most love and cherish for the world. And when we do that, we give money. Uh, uh, it's, it's a karma almost. I call that blessed money. And you don't need as much money when you're using it that way. And I also think that what we want to treasure is not money, but the experience of sufficiency, knowing that we are sufficient. Uh, mm-hmm. Sufficiency also a, a synonym for it is that we, we are enough, not just that we have enough, uh, which is also true, but that we are enough. Mm-hmm. And if we let go of this mania of trying to get more and more and more of what we don't really need, which is mostly what we're clamoring to get more of, it frees up immense amounts of energy to make a difference with what we already have. When your gaze is taken away from more and you turn it towards what you already have, your family, your health, your apartment or your little cottage or your home or your, um, or your wonderful backyard, and, you're, uh, and you pay attention to what you already have and make a difference with it, nourish it and make a difference with it, then it expands before your very eyes. And that's a different way of living. In a consumer society, we're not encouraged to focus on what we have. We're, focus- we're encouraged to focus on what we don't have and we think we need and want. So we don't pay attention to what we have, even our own families and children, to the extent that uh, uh, when we do... Uh, that's where nourishment is. That's where prosperity is. It's w- it's with the gratitude and nourishment and appreciation of what we already have. Mm. I have a little phrase called "What you appreciate appreciates," and I think that's kind of the key uh, to living life, uh, particularly right now, but always. Mm. What you appreciate appreciates. I love that. <laughs> I would like to talk more about the Panchamama Alliance, but we're going to take a break, and we'll be right back. Too long, too long, too long, so long, so 
the bottom line in business. Voice America Business. Leadership is not static. It evolves as you do. At Alexa Consulting, we work with CEOs, senior leaders, and leaders in transition who want to make a difference. Leaders who believe that good business is good for people, good for the world, and knows that conscious actions can have global impact. Are you ready to take your leadership to the next level? If you are, then visit our website at www.alexaconsulting.com. That's www.alexaconsulting.com. Alexa Consulting, developing leaders worldwide. Why is Pepsi cooler than Coke? Why are iPods so popular? In 2005, how can you launch a successful brand? Want to know? Learn about the fascinating and intriguing world of graphic design and branding on Design Matters with Debbie Millman. Every Friday at 12 Pacific Standard Time, Debbie Millman will provide you with a provocative look into the stimulating world of design as it intersects with contemporary culture. Hear what the experts have to say about creating, maintaining, and launching a brand in today's challenging marketplace. Join us every Friday at 12 Pacific Standard Time for Design Matters with Debbie Millman, right here on the Bottom Line in Business Talk, Voice America Business. The Bottom Line in Business, Voice America Business. We appreciate you joining our leading conversations today. Now back to your host, Cheryl. And welcome back to Leading Conversations. Lynn, um, I want to speak about, I want you to speak about um, the organization that you co-founded, the Panchamama Alliance. And tell us about what it is and what the mission is. Well, the Pachamama Alliance, uh, first of all, the word Pachamama, P-A-C-H-A-M-A-M-A, is a Quechua word. Uh, Quechua people live all through the Andes of South America and Central America and also in the Amazon rainforest. Uh, uh, the word key, the Quechua word Pachamama means uh, the shorthand way of defining it is Mother Earth, mm. Pachamama. But it also means the Earth to them, the Earth, the sky, the universe, and all time. So the Pachamama Alliance is an alliance between indigenous peoples of the Amazon and modern uh, world people who are committed and awake, like you and me and our listeners. Um, for the preservation of life itself, really. And we have a twofold mission. The first part of our mission is to preserve the Earth's tropical rainforest by empowering the indigenous people who are its natural custodians. Mm. And the second part of our mission is to contribute to the creation of a new global vision of equity, justice, and sustainability for all. And by all, we mean all children of all species for all time. It's the second part of our mission that you and I have been talking about for this uh, this hour, uh, con- contributing to a new global vision of equity, justice, and sustainability for all. The first part of our mission uh, really comes uh, out of uh, the encounter we had with the Achuar people, Achuar people, A-C-H-U-A-R. The Achuar people live in the Ecuadorian Amazon in a very remote region in a pristine, roadless rainforest that uh, has no access other than by small plane. And they have been fiercely protecting their rainforest territory for millennia. Uh, and um, they are um, uh, living in what is known to be now the most important and biodiverse rainforest on Earth. Mm. And they asked for uh, our partnership, partnership with uh, with them, uh, myself, my husband, and a group, a small group of us who went to them, 
in uh, understanding the modern world, which they had had very little contact with, um, so that they would be able to have allies in the modern world that would help them protect their forests when uh, danger came their way. And they saw in their dreams and visions that contact was inevitable and that dangerous contact was coming to them sometime probably around the year 2000. They had these visions in the late 70s, uh, early 80s, and they did something quite remarkable. Rather than staying completely isolated, which could have been uh, possible for them for many more years, they made a decision to initiate the thing they most feared, which was contact with the modern world. But they initiated on their terms in a way that they could control inside of their territory with people who they called to come to them. And we were among that first group. And um, and so they spent years coming uh, to understand the modern world through their encounters with us. And, um, and we formed the Pachamama Alliance, um, uh, number one, to support them in in understanding the modern world and being able to protect themselves when the danger came, which it did in the form of oil companies trying to get into their territory. Mm. Um, but they were able to keep them out. And secondly, um, they also um, told us that uh, if we really wanted to help them, which we did, um, they said, if you're coming to help us, don't waste your time. Uh, but if you're coming because you know fundamentally your liberation is bound up with ours, then let's work together. And so from the very outset, they made it clear that they had a lot to contribute to us. And um, in the early stages of our partnership with the Achuar people, which has now expanded to the Shuar, the Shiwiar, the Kayapo, the Kofan, the Kogi, the Walrani, the Zapro, really all the uh, peoples of the Amazon, um, they told us, they all tell us, if you really want to help us protect this important region, the lungs of the earth, um, what you really need to do is to go home and change the dream of the modern world, um, a dream that's rooted in consumption, depletion, um, uh, extraction, a dream that has us in a trance, just as you and I were talking about mm-hmm. before, a dream that's become a nightmare, not for just for ourselves, but for all forms of life. And they say we can't change our everyday actions without ultimately changing our dream because our our actions will always end up lining up with whatever dream we're carrying. But if we change the dream, then our everyday actions will change. Hmm. So um, that's a tall order. That's the other part of the Pachamama Alliance, and that's why I'm so passionately sharing with you about some of the aspects of changing the dream. Hmm. Um, We have a program uh, in the Pachamama Alliance that responds to this request from the Achuar, and it's called the Awakening the Dreamer, Changing the Dream Symposium. And it's a three, four-hour experience. We deliver it all over the world, all over the United States. Mm -hmm. Volunteers are trained to deliver it. And it's an educational and transformational program that deals with the environmental crisis, the social justice crisis, the financial crisis, and the spiritual crisis as one breakdown in the human journey. And the mission of the symposium is quite inspiring, so I'll kind of leave you with that because I know mm. we're going to be out of time soon. It's to bring forth an environmentally sustainable, spiritually fulfilling, and socially just human presence on this planet. Mm. Uh, and so that's the other part of our work. That's beautiful. You know that, um, you're right, we only have a couple of minutes, but I wanted to touch on this 
um, concept that Ecuador has created a new constitution that gives rights to nature. Mm, yes. Uh, that talk about changing the dream. Yeah. Yeah. Well, that's, that's amazing. That seems like we well we have a long way to go. <laughs> yeah. Well, you know. Anything's possible. That was just miraculous. Last year, my husband Bill and I, we lived in Ecuador, and Bill is very, very skilled um, behind-the-scenes kind of a genius, and he was invited, as was our staff in Ecuador, Fundacion Pachamama, to participate in the Constitutional Assembly. And in that assembly, indigenous people were present and at the table, and they have always treated nature as a rights-bearing entity. Uh, we've treated it like property that we can own, manipulate, buy, and sell. They've never gone along with that. Mm-hmm. So that um, thinking of indigenous people went into the constitutional process, and what came out of that was something that Fundacion Pachamama had a, a significant role in in fostering a the first constitution in history that gives legal rights to nature in fundamental primary law. And that means river systems, forest systems have rights under the Constitution. And that changes the game dramatically, and it's a huge legal precedent and really the beginning of what will be a legal revolution around the world in our relationship with the earth. That's fantastic. It um, makes me think that, you know, we could learn so much from the Achapur people in Ecuador about changing the dream, changing the American dream to a global dream, changing mm-hmm. it from consumerism to what matters. Uh, Lynn, thank you so much for being here today. If people want to know more about your work, uh, how can they contact you? Well, they can go, uh, regarding Pachamama Alliance, they can go to pachamama.org, P-A-C-H-A-M-A-M-A.org. And if they click on the Awakening the Dreamer, Changing the Dream program, they can learn about taking the symposium, and I encourage people to do that. If they want to learn more about The Soul of Money, they can buy my book, The Soul of Money, which is available in bookstores and also on Amazon.com or on my website, Soul of Money, S-O-U-L-O-F-M-O-N-E-Y dot org. I also have on my website messages now about how to be with this financial crisis and will continue mm. to make more messages about that to uh, support people going through the, the difficult uh, times that we're in and heading into. So um, it would be a joy to share any of this with as many people who are interested. Wonderful. Lynn Twist, you're an inspiration to all of us. Appreciate you being here today. Remember, everyone, think big. The world could be a better place because of a conversation that matters. This is Cheryl Esposito. Thank you for spending this hour with Cheryl Esposito and Leading Conversations. You can listen live every Friday at 10 a.m. Pacific Standard Time on the Voice America Business Channel. If you have a question or comment for Cheryl, please email her at leadingconversations at alexaconsulting.com. That's L-E-A-D-I-N-G-C-O-N-V-E-R-S-A-T-I-O-N-S at A-L-E-X-S-A-C-O-N-S-U-L-T-I-N-G dot com. See you next week.